a working verse by verse through the Bible forces you to not choose passages that are your top ten passages that you you know would would love to preach on. It's a challenge uh, uh, to to take the Word of God and be forced to sit down with your thinking cap. Put your, put your rear in the seat until you understand the passage and then do by God's power your best to explain that passage and apply it. <clears throat> Having said that, um, <clears throat> looking at very many uh, uh, commentaries and even hearing some, uh, some speakers on this passage, all of them without any that I know of, uh, would not said that this passage is the most difficult passage for them in the whole Bible. So that's what we're coming to in 1 Corinthians 11, and um, I'm asking the Holy Spirit to take what is said and to stick to us what He wants to stick. Um, 1 Corinthians, just to help you understand the flow here, has an introduction in chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, and then final remarks in chapter 16. But in between 1, 1 through 9 and chapter 16 are five essays. And they are chapter 1, verse 10, through chapter 4, verse 16, where Paul talks about the cross and Christian unity. Then, in chapter 4, verse 17, through chapter 7, verse 40, sex, relationships, men and women, and the human family. And then that section that we just finished up last week, eight chapter, chapter 8, verse 1, through 11, verse 1, freedom and responsibility among the body and to outsiders, to unbelievers. And so now we are coming up on another section here on worship. It begins in chapter 11, verse 2, and it goes through chapter 14 and verse 40. The last essay, if you're wondering, is chapter 15, and it's it's that masterful piece on the resurrection. But we're we're in this fourth section here, this fourth essay, which will have as its theme God-centered, word-driven worship. God-centered, word-driven worship. Chapter 11, verse 2 through chapter 14 and verse 40. You see, after prohibiting the Corinthians in chapter 10 from becoming involved in pagan worship, Paul is going to address three items of abuse that were happening in their worship, in their assembly. There was a concern that was related to women's head coverings or hairstyle when praying and prophesying that we're going to look at today. Then after that, chapter 11, verse 17 through 34, is the abuse of the poor, the social statuses that were segregating different classes of people at the Lord's table, at their feasts they would have and enjoy the Lord's Supper. And then in chapters 12 through 14, proper use of gifts and the assembly. And so we begin in chapter 11, verse 2, where Paul says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me. He, he says, I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things. He's, he's, he's saying, uh, you have done a masterful job at this. And you keep the ordinances, you keep the traditions. And that idea of ordinances and traditions is our teachings that had been passed down. Literally, that word ordinances means things that have been handed down that carry the weight of an apostle. And Paul praises them for that. But then he says in verse 3, But I would, or I wish, uh, I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. What has happened here is he is on the tail end of chapter 10, where he has 
told them about their individual freedom that they have in Christ and the responsibility that comes with it. And now he is reminding them of their responsibility of relationships. And what he wants us to understand from this passage this morning is that worship must glorify God because of God's design. God's design for relationships is accompanied with responsibility. And so he says in verse 3, the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is the man. The head of Christ is God. There, that, that idea of head could also have some undertones of it, of the source. The source of every man is Christ. The source of the woman is the man. The source of Christ is God. And what Paul wants them to know is that God is the ultimate source behind all things. Christ is the head of every believing man because lying behind all things as God the giver of all good gifts and God the fountain of life is the eternal God from whom are all things, from through whom and to whom, Paul says in Romans 11 verse 36. And it's on the basis of this that he says in verses 4 through 6 these words, every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman that prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is even all one as if she were shaved. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn or shaved. But if it be a shame for one to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. There's a lot of things in this passage here that probably, as we heard it and we're hearing it again, might make us scratch our head. But the context here that Paul is addressing is a public worship setting. The gathering of the church together. When the church assembles. And what Paul is referring to was public prayer and public prophesying. Public prayer would be prayer before the gathered assembly. And prophesying, uh, Warren Wearsby says, prophesying is not quite the same as our preaching or expounding the word. A person with a gift of prophecy proclaimed God's message as it was given to him immediately by the Spirit. The modern preacher studies the word and prepares his message. <clears throat> Public prophecy is described in chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. So turn over there so you get an understanding of what Paul is, is, is addressing here. <clears throat> Verse Corinthians 14. Paul says, follow after charity or love and desire spiritual gifts, but rather that you may prophesy. For he that speaks in a... In a, in a and those, that word unknown is, was added by the translators, and it really doesn't need to be added. So we're going to read it without that. He that speaks in a tongue or language speaks not to men, but to God, for no man understands him. <clears throat> However, in the Spirit he speaks mysteries. But he that prophesies speaks to men to edification or building up and exhortation and comfort. He that speaks in an unknown tongue, in a tongue, language, edifies himself. But he that prophesies edifies the church. And Paul says, I would, or I wish that you all spoke with tongues, but rather that you prophesy. Paul's saying, that's what I wish that you would do, is have this gift of prophecy. For greater is he that prophesies than he that speaks with tongues or languages, except he interpret that the church may receive edifying. So Paul puts a high priority on prophesying here in the early church. Uh, the, 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 the gift of prophecy... Uh, was released to the church in Acts chapter 2 and verse 17 and 18, where Peter in his sermon uh, at the day of Pentecost says these things. He says, the prophet Joel prophesied, 
And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams and on my servants and on my handmaidens and will pour out in those days of my spirit and they shall prophesy. So this was coming. This is coming to, to, to fruition here in Corinth. It was released to the church in Acts chapter two. There's an example of. Of, uh, of, of prophecy and even some, some ladies prophesying. In Acts chapter 21 and verse 8 through 11, one of the figures of the church, Philip, who's one of the early uh, servants of the church in Acts chapter 6, is said in Acts 21 verse 8, <clears throat> Luke says, The next day we that were of Paul's company departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered in the house of Philip the evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him, and the same man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. And then right on the heels of that, he gives an example of a prophet and his prophecy. And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. And when he was come to us, he took Paul's girdle and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus says the Holy Ghost, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owns this girdle and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So there, there, there's, there's the description, there's the practice of it in the early church. And back to our passage in 1 Corinthians 11. So this was a public thing. This is a pu- part of the public worship there. And, and, and the praying and prophesying of men and women in 1 Corinthians was not discouraged in public worship. What was discouraged was the wrong attention away from God to the individual that was going on in Corinth. Because worship and our gifts must point to God, not to ourselves. Uh, skill, passion, ability that God gives, expression, all those things are fine and proper in their place as long as God gets the glory. As long as His glory is magnified and not our own. The problem was that the cultural distinctions of Corinth were becoming a distraction from God being glorified in the prayer and prophesying. That was the problem. You see, in the Roman Empire, in the Roman pagan temples, the elite men would wear a head covering in their pagan worship practice to distinguish themselves as elites in the Roman society. And by wearing these head coverings as men, they would draw attention to their place in society. It's like a badge of honor. And in our passage, 1 Corinthians 11, <clears throat> verse 4, Paul says, Every man praying or prophesying having his head covers covered dishonors his head or brings shame to his head. You see, what they were doing is God was forbidding Christian men to bring this practice into the church to draw attention among their assembly to their social status instead of Christ in the ministering of their gifts of prayer and prophecy. And so, you, rem- you might know even in Jewish practice, uh, men wear, would, even today, where Jewish men would wear a yarmulke. Um, in Jesus' day as a rabbi, he would have a prayer shawl that he would put over his head as he would pray. And Paul actually diverts from the regular Jewish practice to say, No, because this is an issue in your culture of bringing attention to your status. Don't practice this. 
So the problem was the cultural distinctions of Corinth were becoming a distraction from God being glorified. So uh, they, they could have... The possibility here was that was being brought into the church and and men could have been adopting a dress code in their gatherings that was making a statement about their high status in the church community. And they actually, Paul's actually telling them they needed to, to dress down because they were marking themselves as arrogant. Look at me. Look at my fine clothes. Look at my social status. They weren't reflecting Christ in simplicity. And humility and grace and truth as the gathering should be. And so Paul says in verse 4, they are dishonoring their head. And when he is speaking about dishonoring their head, he's making a play on words. He's not talking about their literal crown here. He's not talking about their cranium. What he is talking about, and the, and the, and the Greek grammar uh, understands and points to, the, to it this way, is they are shaming the head, Jesus Christ. It is not their physical head, but it is their spiritual head, Christ, who would be shamed by their practice of distracting attention away from their Jesus who died for them. Or what about the women? What's Paul talking about there? Well, in that age, hairstyles and customs were commonly set by the royal women of Rome. So the wife of Caesar may set the trends of what was expected for women in the Roman Empire to dress and be portrayed. How would you like that pressure, women? And it was about this time that the wife of Emperor Claudius and the mother of the future Roman Emperor Nero wore a braid that was gathered into a long loop and two long strands of curled hair would fall at either side of the neck. And that and that day would became the symbol of modesty and chastity for Roman women. And to have her hair not like this, not indicating this cultural symbol for, for modesty and chastity in that culture, would distract from the prayer or prophesying that was supposed to be done for God's glory for the building up of the church assembly. And Paul says, you might as well just have your head shaved, which was a symbol of disgrace. There's even some evidence in that culture that when a woman would have her head shaved, that would be a punishment for, for adultery. And Paul doesn't congratulate the women on bringing this new expression here of, of, uh, of freedom. He insists on, on making a distinction between the genders during worship. And we'll explain why hereafter. There might be another dimension to this problem in Corinth, in Paul's day, that the only women who seem to appear in public, normally, without some kind of head covering, were prostitutes. This isn't directly suggested in this passage here, but it may have been in the back of Paul's mind as he observed society. And if the watching world discovered that Christians were having meetings where, where women let their hair down in this fashion like a prostitute, it could have the same uh, 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 effect on their reputation as it would in the modern West if someone walked into the church and found women, allow me to be frank, all wearing bikinis. That's the kind of horror they might experience. So what it all comes down to is that the, 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 the action in the Corinthian church with these men or these women and these women must have been very deliberate. Must have been very deliberate. It's a, it was a flaunting of their freedom in Christ again. It must be understood to bring shame on their head 
the head Jesus Christ. And probably it's rooted in a breakdown in the distinction between the genders, sexes. So Paul wants them to return what is understood in their culture as what is customary. You know, in every culture there are good things. Because of God's common grace, he has made the the rain to fall on the just and the unjust here. And there are good things. And we don't throw everything out that's in culture. We see, we filter it through the word of God, and we embrace what is good, and we cast off what is not good. And Paul sees these expressions uh, properly, the gender distinctions, and the the expression of modesty here, as what is good. But there were people who were exercising their gifts to the assembly, and rightly so, but they were deliberately doing it and portraying themselves out of God's design and distinction. In other words, they had an agenda to cast off distinctions in their culture. And their gift, their spiritual gift of prayer and prophecy, was marred because it was directing attention away from God and not building up the church because of the deliberate pride in their hearts. And so it's in this that Paul says in verse 7 through 10, For man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God, But the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the woman created for the man created for the woman, but the woman for man. For this cause ought the woman to have the power have power on her head because of the angels. Now what Paul here is going to say, and I'll continue verse 11 and 12, Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. And if you're a little confused about Paul's wording, you're not alone, as I've done the research here. It's hard to grasp here the understanding, but God has not given us scripture here to just scratch our heads about and never know the meaning. And I can tell you here, as we work through these verses, what the things are that I believe God wants us to shake down out of all of this here. And what Paul is saying here is, by praying and prophesying in a way that disregarded the distinction between the sexes, they were bringing shame on the man whose glory the woman is intended to be. Paul understands that man and women both are created to God's image. The woman is man's glory. She is related to man as his glory, as his weightiness. And that relationship had been jeopardized by how she was portraying herself in worship. Paul is saying here. And so in verses 8 through 9, he's trying to explain further what he said at the end of chapter 7, that woman is man's glory. You might wonder what he's talking about, and I have to direct you all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 23. When after Eve is presented to Adam... Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now God had said in chapter 2 verse 18, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a help me. That word there is an easer, a helper, a rescuer for him. 
And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found an easer, a helpmeet, a rescuer, a completer for him. And you know the story. God takes his rib and he forms woman out of man. Now, here's what needs to be understood. By referencing that passage, man, woman was created from man, there in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is explaining how man is the woman's head. He is the source of her life. The woman is from the man. She was made from Adam's rib. But beyond that, he also shows that she is his glory. She was created for the man's sake. Now, please don't understand that to mean that the woman was created just so that the man could have uh, uh, someone to dominate. That's not the idea. Just so he could have his needs fulfilled here uh, and, uh, and, 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 and have this uh, uh, authoritative relationship. That's not the idea here. See, when God created Adam, man by himself is not complete. He's the only one of God's creation in chapter 2, verses 18 through 20 of Genesis. That is without a counterpart here. Without a companion or helper suitable to him. The animals obviously will not do as they're coming by and Adam's naming him. He needs one who is bone of his bone. One who is like him, but one who is different from him. One who is uniquely his own glory. And so when, when Adam... Uh, sees the woman, he glories in her by bursting into the song, she is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She is the man's glory because she came from man and was created for him. She is necessary for him. She exists to his honor as one who, having come from man, is this is the one companion that is suitable to him. So they might be complete and together they might form humanity. So what Paul is saying here in these verses is this. He's saying it's true that the woman was created from man. But where did you come from, men? Your mother came before you. You were taken out of her. So what are we arguing about here? Yes, female woman came out of the body of the man. But every male since Adam has come from who? Woman. And so his point is that all things, male and female, come from God. Now Paul's point and this is that um, uh, uh, that uh, the, the story of creation didn't happen the other way around. Man came from woman and he came for her, her sake. That's not his, his argument here. And so therefore he's her head and she's his glory. What, what, what he is saying is this. Do not disregard one of the apparent visible differences, expressions of difference between men and women. Because when you do so... It brings shame on the man by trying to dissolve those differences of male and female. And so here's what he says in verse 10. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head or authority on her head because of the angels. The authority of God and his design and not running away from it and being distracted uh, distracting from it by rebelling, rebelling from worshiping Christ and building up church in the gathering was the issue. 
And someone put it this way, you could kind of compare um, the, the casting off of the, of the distinctions here between man and woman and worship. Would be like, be like a woman who refused to wear her wedding ring. Now, is there a rule that you have to wear your wedding ring? I mean, there's, it, it's okay if you don't wear your wedding ring, I guess, right? But what's the principle of it? There's nothing wrong with not wearing a wedding ring, but it's the implications about it, right? And the questions of, why do you not wear your wedding ring, right? That outweigh the reasons not to wear your wedding ring. In other words, not wearing your wedding ring, ladies, would cause more problems to not wear your wedding ring than, than that would fix. And Paul here is saying, take the cultural appropriations of that day, the distinction of the genders, and apply them here, because otherwise you can be a stumbling block. And he adds this interesting phrase here at the end of verse 10. He says, because of the angels, because of the angels, which again is one of these perplexing phrases here. Uh, And here's my stab at it. Okay, so don't take this as gospel. Here's my interpretation and stab here. All right. Turn with me to Job chapter 38, please. Job 38. What does it mean that she needs to operate within this sphere here because of the angels? When I put together what the scripture says, this is, this is, this is my conclusion. and Maybe you have a better explanation. If you do, write a book on it. Because apparently nobody else does. Either. I'm not discounting the authority of the word. I am... Emphasizing the all-knowing nature of God that is beyond us. Job 38, 1 through 7, this is, this is God's response to Job after Job has just peeled out his heart before God in his trials. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is it that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now your loins like a man, for I will demand of you and answer you me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? He's going to bring Job on a tour all the way back in the time machine to creation. And pose these rhetorical questions to prompt Job's thinking. Declare if you have understanding. Who has laid the measures thereof, if you know? Or who has stretched the line upon it? I was measuring out the earth and, and, and comp, uh, computing uh, 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 how the universe should be. Uh, Job, where were, where were you in that? And he says in verse 6, Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof in the universe? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And what he is saying in those verses is that Job, when I was laying out creation, I was speaking it into existence, the angels of God were with me and rejoicing. And Job, you weren't there. But the angels of God were there. You see, the Jewish rabbis argued that creation was such an astounding event that there must have been an audience to praise God for that wondrous accomplishment. And so immediately in their minds, well, who was there to see it? But we don't read in the Bible when angels were created. We read about the physical universe. So the angels must have witnessed creation and it testifies to it. In Job 37, the reference to uh, the, the sons of God, they witnessed creation and they sang praise to God. 
And Paul here in 1 Corinthians 11 seems to be referring to the presence of those same angels and they're around the new creation of God. You understand that the church is a foretaste of the new creation. That's why in 2 Corinthians 5.17 we're told we are new creatures in Christ. We're a foretaste of what is to come after Christ returns. And so there they were uh, for the same reason to praise God for this wonderful event. In fact, if you read the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and chapter 3, you'll find an angel attached to each church. And do you know angels are observing us as we gather? In fact, they, uh, Hebrews 1.14 tells us there are ministering angels that serve us. It doesn't really tell us a whole lot about how that happens, but we're just told that's true. We must believe it. And so, Paul is saying to the people of Corinth and to the whole church, so angels rejoice in seeing God create the world. Who saw, remember this is before sin, they saw the original beauty and the good and design God had for humanity. And they certainly, angels are accustomed to seeing the will of God done in heaven and they want to see the will of God done on earth as it is done in heaven. They marvel, First Peter tells us, at the redemption God has provided, us for, provided for us in Christ to restore the image of God marred by our sin. They observe, Ephesians 3, uh, 10 through 14 tells us, the glory of God in His wise plan of the church. And they see this out-of-step twist that is going on in Corinth. Away from God's design. And this self-absorption of these men and women prophesying and praying for their own benefit, for their own glory. And perhaps they are perplexed by what redeemed Christians who are being remade in the image of God are missing because of pride. And friends, this tells us here that our worship must be God-centered. It must be word-driven. It must be a sacrifice of praise to Him. It must build up the church. That must be our intent and our practice because nothing else is sufficient. And so, in verses 11 and 12 of 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is urging that that relationship that complements each other of men and women needs to be expressed also in worship. He says, nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without man and the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things are of God. God, again, as as the source. He is reminding them that, yes, woman came from man. They are dependent on each other, though, for proper worship, as man comes from woman as well. There's a kind of, 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 of 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 of, of a play together here. A beauty of cooperation that works out in the church. And remember, the word in Genesis 2, translated as helper for the woman, is the Hebrew word ezer. It means rescuer. It's used of God himself, actually, in scriptures. So God gave woman to be more than just your assistant, men. She has a noble place of rescue in the life of man. In Genesis, she rescued Adam from human solitude. And then, she becomes the means through which, after their sin, the rescuer would come. So there's a beauty here of complementary roles and worship that men and women have. And they have these good things because Paul says God is the source of this good. So this is why God has given specific instructions to the worship of the church, especially in the pastoral epistles and in 1 Corinthians that we'll continue to see through chapter 14 because it shows His wisdom and it reflects His glory and design. 
And Paul closes with these words. Verse 13. Judge in yourselves. Is it comely or proper that a woman pray to God uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame or dishonor to him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. What Paul is saying here is that generally, normally in society, you can think of exceptions to this, like the colonial period. Men had the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the ponytail. Um, Paul himself was an exception to this. He had long hair for a time in Corinth, actually. And you read Acts 18, verse 18, and for a vow he made to God not to cut his hair until a certain time. Even certain aspects of the Greek culture, the Spartans wore, the men had longer hair. And there were men in the Bible, like the Nazarites, right, who had a, a special uh, vow toward God. But generally in culture, there's understanding that men normally have shorter hair than women. And for women who generally take joy in their hair, right? I mean, there's a reason we have beauty salons, right, uh, in our area, and cosmetology school, etc. And you think about the sadness that comes in chemotherapy, right, when a woman loses her hair. So in the culture of his day, with the ex- expected cultural distinctions, Paul is, 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 is like he is in, in verse 5 and 6, is arguing that, that since women have generally by nature been given long hair as a covering, that it itself points to their need to be covered when praying and prophesying here. And Paul says that this had been the practices of the early churches. That's what he's saying in verse 16, in the setting they were in. And the application for their principles in their day, he had laid out for them to apply, to make sure the activities of prayer and prophecy of men and women were contributing in the gathering of the assembly, that it be God-centered and word-driven. And behind all of this, Paul is saying what he will explicitly say in chapter 14, verse 40, that everything should be done in the assembly and worship in a fitting and an orderly way, properly and decently in order. That's what Paul is arguing here. Okay? And his main point in this section is that in worship, men should follow the dress and hair codes which proclaim them to be male, and women the codes which proclaim them to be female. In other words, if it's the if it's a, 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 a if if there is a distraction away from who they are as male and female in Christ, then we need to think about that. But I will say, and I'm been building up to this all along. Here's the underlying point of this passage altogether. That in worship, it is important for men and women to be their truly created selves in Christ. To honor God by being what he made them to be. And not be blurring the lines by pretending to be something else. Now that cuts across a whole host of things, doesn't it? We are to come with a heart of authenticity before the Lord. We are to come in simplicity and humility as ones who have undeservedly received grace. That is to be our posture in worship. Not all about me, or I didn't like that, or I didn't like that verse, or I like this passage better, or, should have done, or I like this song, or I wish we would have said that. For it. No, it's about Jesus. And when we take that away, friends, we are blurring lines about who we really are. Who we really are in Christ are redeemed 
sinners made saints. That needs to be the underlying point here. And friends, we can follow God's design and worship and be authentic because of Jesus' death and resurrection. It undid the marring of our purpose and being made in His image and making us new creations. It erases shame. The ability to glorify God is reinstated because of Christ. And the church is the theater of His glory. The only drama that should be on display in the church is the drama of the beauty of the redemption of Jesus Christ. That's the drama that should be on display. Not all the drama that distracts away from Jesus. And we glorify God in humble harmony in building up His church. This, friends, is what brings joy to our Father. Let's pray.